Trauma Therapist Podcast, Episode 21. Passion, dedication, and inspiration. If you're ready to hear inspiring interviews with amazing trauma therapists, are you ready to become the best version of yourself? Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support, and it is 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. No more worrying about finding the right provider or scheduling appointments. Cerebral brings it all to you whenever and wherever you need it. To get started on your path, towards better mental health, Cerebral is giving you, the Trauma Therapist Podcast listeners, 15% off your first month of online therapy, medication, or both. Get started by going to Cerebral.com slash podcast and use the code the Trauma Therapist. That's Cerebral, C-E-R-E-B-R-A-L.com slash podcast, and don't forget to use the code the Trauma Therapist to get 15% off your first month, make 2024 your best year yet. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Please see site for details. This is it. Right here, right now. With your host, Guy McPherson. All right, folks, before we get started, it's time for some five-star shout-outs. I want to say thank you to those people who have gone on over to iTunes and given us some five-star ratings and reviews. Taylor White, Rex D, Laurie Salter, thank you guys so much. Mr. Clever, Kathy Tonbau, The Overwhelmed Brain, thank you. Brian H, Y Frazier, Mother Jen, and Startup Dad, HQ.com. Thank you guys so much for taking the time, writing something nice about the podcast. It just helps the podcast get noticed more. If anyone wants to do that, just head on over to iTunes and give us a five-star rating and review. Really appreciate it. All right, let's get started. All right, welcome to the Trauma Therapist Podcast. My name is Guy McPherson, and this is the podcast where we interview master trauma therapists from all over the world to learn about what inspires them and the steps they've taken to become masters in their field. If you're a trauma therapist, if you're interested in trauma therapy, or if you're simply passionate about helping other people this is it. Today, I'm so excited to introduce my guest today, Dr. Gil Reyes. Gil, are you ready to go? Yes, I am. All right. Gil is a clinical psychologist in Santa Barbara, California at the National Child Traumatic Stress Network. He's involved with the Terrorism and Disaster Center at the University of Missouri and the National Center for Child Traumatic Stress at UCLA. In 2012, Gill received the American Psychological Association's Award for Presidential Service to the Society for the Study of Peace, Conflict, and Violence. He was the lead editor of the four-volume handbook of International Disaster Psychology in 2006 and the Encyclopedia of Psychological Trauma in 2008. All right, so Gil, I've told our listeners just a little bit about you. Take a moment, share with us something personal about yourself, where you're calling from, for example, and then we'll get started. Thanks, Guy. Yeah, I'm in Santa Barbara, California, which is not far from my childhood home. I grew up in the Ojai Valley, about an hour south of here, and went to the University of California at Santa Barbara for my bachelor's degree in psychology. So uh, I went on then to the University of uh, Colorado Boulder, uh, where I completed my graduate studies and uh, received a doctorate 
in psychology with an emphasis in clinical psychology. I was very interested in trauma across the lifespan, but even more specifically, early trauma. Everyone who goes into psychology and an awful lot of people who don't have a theory of human development and how we become who we are, what shapes us. And I believe that early life experiences shape us. That's not unusual among psychologists as well as other people. But I was also seeing a lot of trauma in the lives of young people, particularly family violence and child abuse. And I wanted to be someone who could help. But I didn't know what it meant to help, so I thought I'd better go study it. And uh, at Boulder, I was able to study childhood trauma. The perspective I took is a combination of attachment theory, John Bowlby's theory of how we become who we are through our relationships. The other is what's sometimes referred to as an information processing model of trauma, that trauma, like everything else, like this podcast, is information. We take it in and we have to process it. So that made a lot of sense to me uh, as someone who's been exploring the world, much like yourself and the listeners, and uh, trying to make sense of it. So uh, that was the influence on me. I came out and immediately went into academia. So unlike many of uh, your guests, I'm not sure that most people would think of me mainly as a therapist. I'm more of a trauma researcher well, that, that's okay. Uh, more of a we, scholar. We yeah, had, that's that's really where my interests are. I enjoy working with people, uh, but I'm also very interested in training others. And so I've dedicated a good deal of my career to graduate education, uh, helping people to get trained so that they can come out and do this kind of work. That sounds good. Well, we allow uh, your kind on here also. <laughs> so let's uh, transition to our first topic, which is really the quote. You know, this podcast is about getting to know, really getting to know you better with the goal of inspiring other clinicians, other trauma workers, if you will. In order to do that, the first thing we do here is really kind of hear what's inspired you. I know you kind of touched upon that a little, but share with us, Gil, a quote, a mantra, something that's guided or inspired you on your journey in this, in this realm. Well, I thought about this, and the quote that kept coming to mind doesn't have a whole lot to do with trauma, uh, but it is one, going back to my late teen years, uh, I started reading poetry, and the, the poet who connected with me most strongly was T.S. Eliot. And in a, a famous uh, set of poems that he wrote, The Four Quartets, one is called The Little Gidding. And it's a fairly famous quote, uh, but it, I don't think it's a cliche. I think it's, it's meaningful and it's wise. And Eliot said, we shall not cease from exploration, and the end of all of our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. And this has proven to be very accurate. Are you tired of spending countless hours buried under mountains of progress notes or clinical notes, it's time to focus on what truly matters, which is providing exceptional care to your clients. Introducing Text Expander, your ultimate solution to help you streamline documentation and boost your productivity. I've been using Text Expander for years, and it's one of the tools I use every single day. 
if you're a therapist, if you're a coach, any content or text you use on a regular basis in your progress notes, for example, your name, address, or even longer forms, paragraphs of notes or sections of reports, you can create a shortcut for it. Text Expander automatically populates entire paragraphs of text, saving you valuable time and effort, and it allows you to get back to what truly matters, your clients. Text Expander is offering the Trauma Therapist Podcast listeners 20% off when you go to textexpander.com slash trauma. That's textexpander.com slash trauma. In my own life, and it's a humbling idea. It says to me, never become too certain of what you think you know, because you're not sure that you're ready to cease your exploration, that you're at the end of your exploring. But one thing that you suspect is that whenever you get there, everything you know will be behind you and you will know the place for the first time. Nice. So, ne- so never become too certain in what you think you know. Break that down a little more personally. Why does that resonate with you personally? Share with us perhaps an example or um, something more specific. Okay, yeah. I, I do tend to think at a very abstract level. And uh, so I'll try to personalize it, but I'll start off by saying that my own life experience has shown me again and again that the biggest thing that gets in our way is what we think we know. That when we stay curious, we keep learning. And when we lose that curiosity and we start having a sense of certainty, then we want to start promulgating our point of view. And that's a problem. And whether it's as a teacher, so if I go into the classroom and I think I know exactly what it is my students need to know, then I am going to try to uh, infect them, inoculate them, however you want to think about it, uh, inculcate them with my knowledge and my wisdom the sage on the stage. But if I will explore ideas with them, I find that students really open up. And instead of trying to figure out what it is I want them to say to please me, then they are going to really take a look at life and really dig down deep and try to figure out what it is they really think is true. I find the same thing with uh, patients, that the therapist who goes in thinking that they've got it all figured out and that all they have to do is get that patient to understand what the therapist already knows, uh, are pretty lousy therapists. Uh, They're more like uh, philosophers or uh, they want to develop a cult of personality and turn their patients into mini-me's, little examples of me. (laughs) And I don't think that's good therapy. I think that what therapy is about is the same thing that human development is about. It's about finding the best in ourselves and the best in our opportunities in life. And that doesn't come from trying to be someone else. Nice. So, so when we stay curious, we keep learning. Right. I love that. And that certainly resonates, as you said, with um, you know, how therapists work. It's something that I kind of speak a lot about on this podcast, which is you know, having an agenda. You know, a lot of times I think it's easy for uh, maybe certainly newer clinicians to want to learn more, obviously, and you know take workshops and classes. And the inclination, natural, I think, is to you know want to implement that 
uh, right away in the therapeutic setting. So, you know, it's, it's easy to have an agenda when you walk into that room. But certainly, I think what uh, you're speaking to is uh, a great reminder to really be cautious and aware and certainly to stay curious. So let's, let's move on here. This is about highlighting your journey. Um, you know, people enter into the specialization of trauma for different reasons. I've often talked about it here um, several times. And for me, it had to do with my brother coming back from Iraq. He was in the special forces. He came back with PTSD. And I was so, you know, so psyched to, to talk to him and, and find out what his experiences were. And he just did not want to have anything to do with it. And I didn't realize that, didn't recognize that, didn't see that. But really, you know, I have to admit that I was pestering him. This is certainly before I knew anything about trauma. But tell us a story, Gil. Break it down for us. You know, kind of step back, if you will, I think from the abstract level, which you did nicely in the, in the previous story. What led you into this field of trauma? Hmm. The first thing was that I wanted to make the biggest difference that I could make. And so I was interested in intervening as early in the process as possible. But what process? What's the process? And the answer for me was that the process was development, that we had all gone through a developmental process and it had led us to some fairly different places, though we all have a lot in common. And so as I looked around me and I saw what people were going through and I reflected on what I'd been through in my own life, I thought if there was one thing that you could help people to cope with, it would be those experiences that trap them. And that, to me, that's what trauma does. Uh, two conceptualizations, and I think they're related, uh, though they're quite different uh, at the metaphorical level, is the trap and the haunting. So when people are still coping uh, with trauma months and years later, they feel trapped and they would like to escape that trap most often. They don't like being caught in it. And they feel haunted by it. They feel ambushed by it. Uh, it, it comes upon them and takes center stage in their life or colors an event. They can be at a, at a happy place, a, a wedding, a, a graduation, something like that, and they can feel terrible. And that's not how they want to feel, but they feel trapped in that feeling and ambushed by that memory. And sometimes it's not even a memory guy. I mean, that, that's when we talk about this, if you look in, in our DSM and you look at uh, how we define this haunting, which we call re-experiencing, uh, it's often, we try to give you a concrete example, you know, seeing an image in your mind, hearing a sound, a smell, uh, having a dream. But oftentimes, it's just a state of being. You're just in that trauma place, and it's inside your body. And the fact that you can associate it with a visual image or a, an olfactory image, a smell, or anything like that, is not maybe as relevant as we think it is. Because that's not what haunts you. That's the trigger. But the thing that haunts you is how... Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older. Or that's what your doctor tells you. But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, 
they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience, not just hot flashes. MIDI specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, effective, and FDA-approved. Plus, they're covered by insurance. A convenient telehealth visit with a MIDI clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history, so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. How it feels and how it holds you in that feeling and doesn't want to let you go. So, you know, you started off by saying you wanted to make the biggest difference I could make. You know, and then you ask yourself, where's that going to be? And then you started talking about development. Where, well, why, why did, why this sense or this need or this, this calling to make the biggest difference? Because of my, my valuing of life, that life is too precious to just let people get trapped and imprisoned in their experiences and not be able to get out of it. Because what that does is that stunts their growth. Mm -hmm. I'm one of these people who grew up in the 60s with the human potential movement. Right. And uh, when you're trapped in trauma, you're not going to achieve your highest potential. And so it seemed to me that if I believe that everyone should have that opportunity, then I should be trying to help them to get out of that trap. Yeah, see, that, that really resonates with me, and that's one of the reasons why I'm doing that, because I get to talk to people like you, Gil, who there, there's this calling, there's this need, this is desire, whatever you want to call it, to make a difference and to do it, and that's what you're doing. And I just find that so inspiring, and that's why people are listening to this podcast, because it's so inspiring. Um, and I love the way you kind of you know, broke down... Um, how trauma is impacting individuals, how it's affecting us. You know, you talked about the, the trap and the haunting and it being a state of being. I think that's just uh, so, so resonant. So I want to thank you for that. So, you know, we talked a little bit about your journey, what, what got you into this field. Now let's focus on an error or, or a mistake that, maybe you made early on in your career um, and what you learned from that. You know, share with us uh, that experience and how it has since influenced you as um, someone in the trauma field. Hmm. I think the, the biggest early mistake that I made, and I referenced this earlier, was trying to have it all too much figured out. I, I was very confident that what I was supposed to do was to become the best expert I could be and then I would share that expertise and help someone to, to get out of that trap to, to start moving forward to make some progress but I realized that my own narcissism was getting in the way and that it was causing that problem of wanting to shape the other person's destiny, to take too much of an interest 
in where they were going to go. And I realized that what I needed to do was to help them to find their way out of the trap, but that they had to own the solution, that it couldn't be something they owed me a debt of gratitude for, that they had to be able to say, I did that, didn't I? And that otherwise, the solution wasn't portable, meaning it didn't leave the room and go with them. It stayed in the room with me. And it wasn't durable because it didn't have any staying power. And so what was important then was to learn to support and empower uh, how my clients were able to take this out into the world and have the confidence to use it and use it and use it and to respond well to failures or lack of success. So if they tried something and it didn't really work that well, instead of that being a crushing blow, it was just information that they could use to improve. Okay, so you started off by talking about, you know, initially you wanted to become the best expert you could be and then impart that information on your clients or your students. And then this this kind of shift happened, which is the way I, I heard it, and kind of wanted to get your ego out of the equation in a sense and allow your clients or students uh, to own their own solution. And I love the way you talked about it. Be, you know, if you didn't do that, the solution... Uh, would be kind of locked in the room, right? When, when did that happen for you? What, was there a particular client, individual that you realized, wait a minute, I've got to get out of my own way here. This is not working. Uh, it, it came to me in supervision. One of the things that we do when we're trainees is we work very closely with a supervisor. And that person is then able to tell us uh, things about ourselves that we're not noticing or things about the client or the case that we're not noticing. And to the extent that that supervisor works with you across cases, the observations become patterns. And so a really good supervisor, and I had a a really, really uh, great uh, supervisor, and a a trauma uh, expert in his own right. And uh, so he was able to see these patterns of ego investment and the desire to control, too much to control, the trajectory of the therapy. And as I came to understand that more and to trust the relationship and invest that trust toward the client so that the client felt trusted and capable. Then I realized that the client's the real hero and that I'm more like uh, a, uh, an athletic coach or a music teacher. It's that talented athlete or that talented musician who is really going to play the music, who is really going to grow and prosper. And what I'm going to do is help them to get there. Okay, thank you for for elaborating on that. So now we get to one of my favorite questions. You know, we've talked about the challenges of the specialization. What got you here? I also believe that it's important we know 
why we're doing something. You know, the answer to that really is what drives us along in our lives, in our work. And this is a little different than, you know, what got you into this field in the first place. But share with us, what's your why, Gil? You know, why do you continue to do this day in and day out? Well, uh, there's an intellectual answer and there's an emotional answer. So the intellectual answer is because I never tire of this. And I get bored pretty easily. But uh, psychological trauma and particularly the developmental and information processing aspects of it uh, are really fascinating to me. And so I... I really enjoy the exploration. So I, I do think of myself as an explorer, and Elliot uses that term, uh, explore, in, in that quote from Little Gidding. And then the emotional is, I feel really good being on this team. And I was involved, and I think of it that way. I think there are a lot of us who are doing this kind of work. We like to get together. We're a fun crowd <laughs> for the most part. Uh, mostly that's true. And I was reflecting recently because I was, I was talking with some folks. We were, we were doing some community work because there was a, a particularly awful murder that took place. And we were trying to help a number of people around the community to come to terms with it. And I realized I felt really, really good and that most people would expect me to come home drained and to be carrying these awful memories and feelings. And we talk a lot about vicarious uh, trauma and secondary trauma exposure and how um, harmful those can be to first responders and to trauma therapists and the like. And uh, I'm, I'm not disparaging that at all. In fact, I'm, I'm involved with a, a national uh, group right now that's, that's working on a vicarious trauma study. But that said, I wasn't getting traumatized. I was feeling like, good, I get to be part of the solution. You know, as you talk, Gil, I mean, I hear in your voice, again, and it kind of brings me back, to what you said in the beginning is this sense of exploration, the sense of curiosity. What is it? Is this something that's just grown in you? Is this something that's been cultivated? Um, you know, you touched upon, uh, you know, your, your background or your history. Is this, are some people called to do this work? What, what is it with you? I, I guess I want to I wanna know. Because what I'm here, I, I'm just so inspired by listening to you. And I kind of want to just find out what that, maybe I'm looking for an easy answer. But what I, I want to know, what's, where did it start for you? Hmm. Well, it, there's a general and a specific answer to that. <laughs> The, the general answer is that um, I, I sort of uh, probably falsely uh, think we're all like this or all were like this. Uh, children are extremely curious. Uh, they just they want to explore everything in their environment. And, you know, we'll put things in our mouths that our mothers will say, get that out of your mouth. That doesn't go there. 
And, uh, you know, we're just, we're, we're very tactile and we, we want to touch everything. We want to, we want to turn it upside down, shake it, see what it does. And that's the kind of kid I was too. And, uh, it just never stopped. And so I continue to have that very inquisitive quality that I, I want to understand and explore things. Uh, the specific part about trauma, because that's a generic answer, that, uh, was that, you know, I went through an experience when I was uh, quite young where my family was uh, uh, in a car and uh, the, the car crashed uh, into uh, a, a solid object. And afterward, you know, after the medical treatment and everything that follows, uh, I found that I had memories that were very powerful and that there were feelings attached to those memories and that sometimes I would be in a car and I would experience some of that anxiety uh, and I would see some of that imagery or I would be in a, in a situation where I would hear the song that was on the radio or see a scene out the window that was reminiscent of it. And that these, these things, while they didn't, you know, haunt my dreams and didn't, you know, damage my life in any extreme way that, that I was cognizant of, uh, for some time, uh, probably a few years, uh, they continued to have some resonance. And so when I got older and I was studying you know, psychology before I went to graduate school, I would reflect on my own early years, uh, as we all do, I think, you know, when we study a subject like psychology uh, uh, in particular. Uh, how can you sit in a psychology class and have a professor lecturing to you about early child development and not reflect on your own childhood? How can you have them talk about um, the effects of school and peer relationships on personality without reflecting on your school and your peers and all those kinds of things? So I, I do sort of see that as something we all do and did, uh, which is personalize whatever it is we were trying to learn. And so I found myself reflecting on that and saying, aha, you see in your own life, that uh, these difficult situations can have reverberant impact on how you will feel, what you will think about, and decisions that you will make subsequently. So just magnify that, amplify that by 10, and you start to get a sense of what it must be like for people who are truly traumatized. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that. I mean, I think that story just so informs everything you've said prior to that um, in just such a profound way. You know, Gil, many of our listeners are just getting into this field. There are others with more experience. You know, you've been doing this for a while. You're, you've got a lot going on. I mean, just uh, you know, a simple Google search will let anyone know that. What advice, what suggestions would you give to someone, maybe just getting into this field, maybe even hesitant or scared to do so, um, someone perhaps just beginning their, their trauma therapy education? What would you say? Hmm. 
I would say be extremely skeptical. You, you said something earlier in the interview, Guy. Uh, you said, maybe I'm looking for a too simple answer. And uh, when I heard you say that, I thought, well, aren't we all? <laughs> We're all looking for a too simple answer. And so when I first came into this field, and I wasn't a psychologist yet, I was just an undergraduate, uh, and I was studying, and I was thinking, oh, look, wow, that's great. You know, Freud has these great answers. Jung has these great answers. This one has these good yeah. And essentially, the history of psychology and of psychotherapy is uh, people having these great answers, but these, now I'm going to, I'm going to upset some folks out there, okay? But a lot of these great answers aren't so great. They don't really hold up. When you investigate them, when you examine them, they start falling apart. And so I didn't come into this, and the people I'd be talking to in answering your question are not people who kept, came looking for a new religion or a new doctrine of life or anything else. If they're, you know, if they're looking to become a guru, I would say, please don't. If they are looking to really understand psychology, question everything. Because in psychology, and psychology professors will not often say this kind of thing, I don't think, at least they haven't been saying it in my presence, an awful lot of what you are told does not have much evidence or it doesn't have a very good shelf life. So take that concept of a shelf life. I recently heard the phrase used, I think it's a book title, the shelf life of a fact. Some facts have very long shelf lives and some facts uh, have very short shelf lives. And some things that pretend to be facts are not facts at all. They're just somebody's speculation and somebody else liked it and they picked it up and ran with it and there you go, we're off to the races. But we're dealing with people's lives. This is important stuff. This is not some silly game we're playing. So we really do need to keep trying to do better all the time and never rest on our laurels and absolutely do not get, uh, I don't know if you've run across this term yourself, it's called theory blindness. No, and I that haven't. means that the more powerful the theory is that you believe in, the more it blinds you to everything but itself. So it's a little bit like getting too close to an object. If you get too close to an object, you can't see anything else that's behind it. So be skeptical, be skeptical and question everything. I mean, I think that, personally, I think that's great advice. And, um, <laughs> you know, it, I, again, you know, I talked about different workshops and, and uh, modalities or interventions, of which there are many in this, in this field, not unlike any other fields or specialties of psychology. But uh, I think for anyone starting out, those are certainly, um, you know, sage words of advice. So, Gil, you know, we're coming to the end here. Share with us the best way to get in contact with you. First of all, what, what's going on for you? What do you have going on right now, presently? Well, there's the, the two things I'm most involved in right now uh, are my local work and my national work. So uh, you, you mentioned the national work, the National Child Traumatic Stress 
network. And that, um, th- that's one of the, the, the greatest things that's happened in my lifetime in terms of trauma. When I was a graduate student, we dreamed of having anything even vaguely similar to a National Child Traumatic Stress Network. And it actually happened. And it happened as an act of Congress, of all things. I mean, we all know how unpopular Congress has been for a good long time. But someone in Congress got someone else in Congress to agree with them, and pretty soon they were, a majority of them were in agreement. And they said, we need to do something about childhood trauma. Let's fund a national network of the top thinkers and the top centers in childhood trauma. And let's get, you know, empower them to make a difference. And that's been going on for about uh, 12 to 13 years now. And we've had some ups and downs. There have been some times when uh, we thought our funding was going to get severely cut. In fact, we were warned that our network was going to get decimated because of the budget crises that keep happening. And uh, instead, we got refunded at the same level. And Congress stepped up again. And we like that. We like that about this network, that it's, uh, you know, it was Congress's idea. And so it's not something that some, uh, uh, you know, department of the executive branch, some bureaucracy came up with, uh, but that Congress did what I think Congress was designed to do, which was represent the needs of the people and see to it that their needs got met. So, uh, yeah, I've been very highly involved in that and trying to develop uh, interventions that will uh, help kids to have the least impact of trauma on their lives. And that's through prevention on the one hand, and we'd all love to do that, but of course, not everything is preventable. And then on the other hand, mitigation. What can we do after children have been exposed to extreme violence or other sources of trauma to help them to have... Uh, the best life that they're, they can possibly have given that event in their lives. Now, the local work, uh, I helped to start an organization here in town. and I'm their uh, executive director on a temporary basis, uh, I think, because essentially this is a group of people that I've been volunteering with, and they asked me if I would step up and take on uh, a title And I said, well, you can call me whatever you want. I'm just going to keep doing what I do, which is to help this network to provide uh, support uh, for the greater Santa Barbara community whenever there are acts of violence that take place here. And uh, so the board said to me, well, we've been wanting to have an executive director. So would you accept that on a you know, sort of a temporary basis until the organization grows big enough that we can actually advertise for and hire an executive director. So they they did it by appointment. It's not the usual process. So I agreed to do that, and it's been keeping me pretty busy. As you know, we had, um, probably follow the news, uh, we had uh, some killings uh, in the uh, community adjacent to the University of California, Santa Barbara, uh, on May 23rd of this year. So I've been involved in providing uh, psychological first aid and starting a series of compassion centers, an idea that I came up with specifically for the Isla Vista community because we didn't have a mental health center or anything like that that we could utilize in Isla Vista. 
So I reached out uh, through my organization to a couple of other organizations, and they provided us with space. And uh, through our volunteer network, we were able to bring in qualified people who could provide compassionate support and psychological first aid, uh, which we developed at the National Child Traumatic Stress Network and the National Center for Post-Traumatic Stress Disorder. Uh, We've since been able to provide that in uh, local schools when they've lost a student. We've had uh, three incidents uh, recently, uh, three different schools, where um, the the youth at the school, uh, one youth in each of the schools was killed. And the schools wanted to be able to respond to their students and their teachers and their staff and their parents with some kind of compassionate support. And so they reached out to my organization, which is called the Santa Barbara Response Network. And we opened Compassion Centers uh, in a conjunction with our Santa Barbara County Mental Health Department, which is uh, a great shining example of what a mental health department ought to be. Wow. So it's been very gratifying. So uh, the NCTSN National Child Traumatic Stress Network and the uh, Santa Barbara Response Network. Um, both those links will be on uh, the show notes page, Gill's show notes page at westcoasttraumaproject.com. Um, Gil, I wanted to touch on uh, two books you could recommend, two books that have inspired you. They don't have to be trauma-related, of course, but um, share with us share with us two of those. Well, now, uh, they aren't trauma-related uh, in the direct sense, uh, uh, but uh, I, I think they're, they're really good books for people who aren't looking for information, but who are looking for inspiration. And so I, I ran across a book in a bookstore, and it had a very attractive cover, kind of a child cover, really. And it was called You Can't Say You Can't Play. And it's by Vivian Gusson Paley. And she was a teacher at the University of Chicago where they ran a laboratory school, meaning that it was part of a university, but it was a school for little kids. And so she would, you know, have these children there and would help people to learn how to, how to better educate young people. And she decided that there was too much rejection and humiliation taking place among these really young kids. And that it was very painful, and she wanted to try to make a difference. And so she came up with this idea, and it, it, it makes me laugh to think of it. But she, she actually went around to the different classes, her own uh, you know, kindergarten kids, and then went to the first and second and third grades and so on, and said, I think we need a new rule here in this school. And that's that if a child wants to play, they get to play. And nobody tells them they can't play. You can't play with us. And so it was, it was her attempt, and uh, I think it was quite a noble attempt, to uh, try to get folks to understand uh, just, just how harmful it is to young kids to be rejected by other young kids when all they want to do is belong and play. So that's one of them. And then the other one, so that, that one was a work of nonfiction. The other one is a work of fiction, 
And it's a little-known book uh, called Operation Wandering Soul. And it's the story uh, of um, doctors in a hospital in Los Angeles. And it's written by a a, a very accomplished uh, author by the name of Richard Powers. And it really captures what it's like to work in what is much like a war zone in America. Uh, This hospital is something like a mash unit uh, because there's just so much going on around there in terms of violence in the community. Uh, It takes place in a pediatric ward. And so what these doctors and nurses are dealing with day after day are kids who are coming in with injuries with diseases like uh, cancer, pediatric cancer patients, that kind of thing, and exactly what it's like to try to go to a place like that and do really good work day in, day out, and not have it uh, damage your life, damage your personality. Uh, And so I I, I found that to be an inspiring work, though some people find it... um, oblique or depressing or that kind of thing. So I wouldn't say it's for everybody, but for someone who can really enjoy great storytelling, great characters, and a writer who has a facility with language like no other writer I've ever read, he, he must have an amazing uh, verbal IQ. Wow. So, so two interesting books, You Can't Say You Can't Play by Paley and the second, Operation Wandering Soul by Powers. Um, they sound awesome. I'm familiar with the first. Haven't read the second. And I think I'm going to get that one. Gil, what's the best way uh, people can get in contact with you? Well, the best way to get in contact with me would be uh, by email. Uh, my uh, email address uh, is drgilreyes at yahoo.com. D-R-G-I-L-R-E-Y-E-S and then at yahoo.com. All right, sounds good. Gil, I want to thank you so much again for taking the time to do this. Um, You are so inspiring. I mean, you're just, you can sense the mission that you're on. And that's, that again, is one of the reasons why I'm doing this. You know, I've, I've been getting a lot of feedback from people who are not even in the trauma field. You know, they come across a podcast and it's really because of, of hearing people like you share their story and their passion for, for helping other people. And um, I want to thank you. It's been a pleasure. And uh, we'll talk soon. Thank you so much, Guy. Bye-bye. Hey, folks. Thanks so much for listening. I want to invite you to head on over to our website, westcoasttraumaproject.com. Jump on our email list and you'll have free and immediate access to a three-part PDF series I put together, Intro to Trauma Training. Check it out, westcoasttraumaproject.com. Thanks again.
Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. 